The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes 12, 9-14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Great delight to be here with you. My name is Paul Lim. I serve here as I'm a scholar in residence, and it's a, that means I often uh, teach Sunday school for the um, adults, and also every six or seven times a year I get to uh, speak to you about things that matter to us a lot, namely scripture and life in God. So um, throughout this series on Ecclesiastes, the writer Kohelet, who is more popularly known as Solomon, King Solomon, has been reminding us that all our strivings are fundamentally vapor. Puff and it disappears, pop goes the world. In that case, the sermon itself is vapor and meaningless and vanity, isn't it? All that we do, all that we are. So if you join me in asking God that in our endeavors to seek God in these moments of speaking and listening and doing, that God will find us, that would be great. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty and all-merciful God, you know that we are of dust, that we come from you and shall return to you. From dust we come, to dust we shall return. In these few moments of reflective obedience, would you glorify yourself by revealing the beauty of the gospel and the vanity of our efforts towards self-aggrandizement and idolatry? Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, if you're like me, part of me struggled with this series, partly because I had to preach twice, but more than that, I think, and I really enjoy listening to and engaging with the sermons preached by Pastor Scott, Russ, and Richie, and so on, but I struggle with liking this Kohelet, or Solomon, or as I affectionately call this person, Q-Man. And yet, would you know it, this book we've been studying since January, Ecclesiastes, is hands down the most favorite biblical book for the philosophers. In fact, it is one of the top three most often commentated book, biblical book, along with Psalms and the Gospel of John. Its cultural and religious impact has been felt throughout the centuries, ranging, ranging from Jerome and Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century to this uh, biblical scholar Moses Mendelssohn in the 18th century who wryly quipped that for I have observed that nearly all the commentators who have preceded me have done 
almost entirely failed in doing justice to their task of interpretation. He was followed by C.D. Ginsburg in the next century, who said that every fresh commentator either actually or virtually regards all his predecessors as having misunderstood Koheleth. So everyone who comes says, well, all of you are wrong, and let me give you a new and best interpretation so far. I'm not about to do that today. But here's another one that I like, written by Ernest Renan. Ecclesiastes passed formally as the most obscure book of the Bible. This is only the opinion of the theologians. And in reality, it is completely false. The book as a whole is very clear. Only the theologians had a major interest in to find it obscure so that they can say something fresh about it. One more from Thomas Paine, one of our founding fathers in his Age of Reason, published in 1794. And although it is not the best book for Orthodox theology, yet this has a wonderful encapsulation of the vanity of the book of Ecclesiastes itself. Thomas Paine, ladies and gentlemen. The book of Ecclesiastes is written as the solitary reflection of a worn-out man of debauchery, such as Solomon was, who, looking back on scenes he can no longer enjoy, cries out, all is vanity. From what is transmitted to us the character of Solomon, he was witty, ostentatious, dissolute, and at last melancholy. He lived fast and died and tired of the world at the age of 58 years. 700 wives and 300 concubines would have stood in the place of the whole book. It was needless after this to say that all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And listen to these words. For it is impossible to derive happiness from the company of those whom we deprive of happiness. The impossibility of deriving happiness from the company of those 700 wives, 300 concubines, of those whom we deprive of their own happiness. Friends, if life is all about taking, taking, and taking, yet more, it will not give us ultimate happiness. This book has served, at least for me and hopefully many of us, as a mirror reflecting our own preconceptions about God and the good life, forcing us to think through the matter of whence we come and whither we are headed, as well as revealing our own perspectives to be in need of revision, if not redemption. It is a sort of a redemption of interpretation. How do you interpret your own life journey so far and years to come? What are the lenses through which you look at your life and says, this is a good life and this is not so good? I want to show you a short video clip lasting about 45 seconds, which reveals to me a great deal about the issue of conflicting interpretations or perspectives on life. I learn a lot about what's happening in contemporary culture from my 13-year-old son. He watches YouTube clips of SNL, Saturday Night Live, a lot. And he enjoys watching something called Black Jeopardy. There's one with Tom Hanks, which is classic. And this one we're about to watch is with Chadwick Boseman, AKA Black Panther. Let's take a look together. <laughs> All right, the board is yours. Very well. Let's go to our hell now for 800. Okay. The policeman says there's been some robberies in your neighborhood and asks if you have any information. What is, not only do I tell this man what I know, but I also assist him in tracking down the offender. After all, our ministers of law enforcement are only here to protect us. Is this correct? 
<laughs> I mean, it should be. But uh, I'm thinking you haven't spent much time in America. <laughs> Let's just hear about today's prizes. Johnny? Thank you. Notice the grimace on Darnell, the host's face, as T'Challa from Wakanda gave an interpretation of what our duties must be if you happen to witness a crime scene. He grimaces and he says what? It should be. It reveals the oughtness, the responsibility. One can say that the host was driven by cynicism, and T'Challa from Wakanda, the idealized republic in Africa, was driven by idealism? Who is right here? Or are they both driven by their own versions of realisms? My experience of life in Wakanda leads me to say that this is my duty and responsibility. My, resp my response for Darnell Hayes, the host of Black Jeopardy, says, it should be like that, but you haven't spent much time in America. Both these, and we laugh, and, and this is a pretty popular video, and, and when I watched it for the first time, I said, I gotta use this for my sermon, wherever it is next time. Because it really does, it, it really does reveal to me the sort of conflicting views about life, certain reality, and we interpret it differently. So we see that right here as well. The book of Ecclesiastes has generated multiple perspectives and multiple interpretations, and I have the crushing burden of bringing it to a closer. And it's not an easy thing, but I'll try here. Ours is fundamentally, our life and our story is fundamentally a war of interpretations. So I've entitled my today's sermon as The End of Matter, or of War and Peace of Interpretations. Some of you, many of us, in fact, may not always like the interpretations of our life and identity. Some people might say you're a B student. In fact, you feel like you're an A student. You may feel like I deserve a raise, and the interpretation of your boss or managing director says, no, you don't deserve it, not yet. You might say I should be in this company of friends, and that company of friends that you want to be part of, whether in middle school or college or in your 60s group, they said, not so fast, my friend. So what sort of interpretations do we believe about ourselves? Does it depend upon our Facebook or Instagram followers or how many likes we get upon our Facebook postings or whatever it is that we do? How do we interpret our own life journey and our identity? I think it's a very important one here. And we'll get to that as we go through. So for the rest of our time, we want to worship God through these three points, if possible. First is vanity of knowledge production. We see that in verse 12. Secondly, we'll see the beauty of the knowledge of God's identity in verses 13 and 14. And thirdly, we'll see the destiny of our identity as beloved of God in verse 14. So vanity, beauty, and destiny. The first point, the vanity of our knowledge production. Here is yet another epigrammatic pithy saying that has come to be so famous since it was written, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. I'm sure students, elementary, middle, high school, college, grad school, you can all say amen to that. You cannot say anything else, amen. This is amen worthy, right? Of much studying, it wearies the body. Absolutely true. It was true when it w this was written back then in about 2,500 or 2,900 years ago. 
and it is so very, very true today. Knowledge production. We have so much knowledge that we can uh, access at our fingertips. You Google something on your phone and comes this, you know, voila, all this information. And so we have a plethora of information, and the question becomes, is that information necessarily leading to transformation? Just because we have a lot of knowledge does not necessarily mean that we have lots of wisdom to go around. Knowledge production as conquest. I want to amass as much knowledge so that I'll beat that other company, that I'll beat that other friend or other country, right? Intelligence warfare and all of these things. Knowledge production as a way of subduing, knowledge production as a way of winning the Game of Thrones. There's an inescapable sense of sarcasm about knowledge production here in today's text. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And this book adds one more book to the plethora of books that are found on our bookshelves. So think about the kind of knowledge production and, and what your relationship with knowledge is. This particular writer, Solomon Kohelet, he says, you know, there's knowledge that is produced, and it just tires us of all. You know, um, there is um, one of the best libraries that I've ever been to um, is the British Library in London. So if some of you travel, get to travel to England or the UK, make sure you go to London. And when you're in London, make sure you go to the Buckingham Palace. But more importantly, in my opinion, is take a visit to the British Library. You don't need to pay any money to go. You go in, and right in front of you, facing you will be this colossal glass tower about six stories high and filled with medieval manuscripts and ancient texts of these leather-bound books that are yay thick and yay high. And so I visited there. I mean, I do, um, since my research area is 17th century England, I go to England pretty often, and I go to their library there a lot. And one time I was there, just, just without thinking much, I just looked up and saw this glass tower, something that I've seen hundreds of times. But that moment, that just kind of something clicked for me. That, that just completely dwarfing what I thought I knew about the world. You know, I published a couple of books and gave a couple of lectures here, so I thought I was smart. And as I stood in front of this glass tower, as a completely dwarfing effect of what little I thought I knew is absolutely nothing compared to this library. But that's only one library in the world. Multiply that by hundredfold, thousandfold, and compare that to infinitefold is the knowledge of God that God has of himself. So we have to ask this question nonetheless. What is this book production industry all about? According to this writer, vanity of vanities, vapor of vapors. So uh, talking about another book, I was reading a book written by somebody in the 17th century in this college library in Cambridge, and there is a marginal note of this book that was an uh, old text. It says, these are the exact words, Herewith I reached the end of the book, yet I have learned less than nothing who is at fault here, question mark. And I was cracking up. This is so true wisdom, true knowledge. So this is written by somebody in the 17th or 18th or 19th century, maybe 20th century. But the scribble and all that, the, so the calligraphy, the, the, the way that the handwriting kind of is more like 17th and 18th century. This person, a student presumably at Cambridge, says, okay, I reached the end of the book. I learned nothing. So whose fault is it? 
Have you ever been there? You read something, it's like, I, don't, I have no idea what this thing, whose fault is it? There's so much knowledge to go around, and where do we go for knowledge source and wisdom production? That is a great, great question. This writer, and there's a very interesting point that this writer is doing here. He talks about the vanity of knowledge production to get us somewhere much more important and poignant. See, Robert Louis Stevenson is best known, as you know, for his uh, Treasure Island and also for the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Listen to what he has to say about this text, about, uh, about this book of Ecclesiastes and about knowledge production. He says, of making books there is no end, complained Solomon. There is no end indeed to making books or experiments or to travel or garnering wealth. Problem gives rise to problem. We may study forever, and yet we are never as learned as we should. We have never made a statue worthy of our dreams, and when we have discovered a continent or crossed a chain of mountains, it is only to find another ocean or another plain upon the further side. In the infinite universe, there is room for our swiftest diligence and to spare. It is not like the works of Carlyle, which can be read to an end. Even in the corner of it, in a private park, or in the neighborhood of a single hamlet, the weather and the seasons keep so deftly changing that although we walk there for a lifetime, there will always be something new to startle and delight us. Thus, never-ending knowledge production. And so he says, look, there's, there's got to be some end to all of this, but there is no end. We keep learning and we keep learning. And he asks this question, does it make us necessarily wiser as a result of our knowledge quest? Not only is there a problem with, of making many books, but also there are problems with unethical cultural production that has destructive consequences. Listen to these words from the Encyclopedia Judaica about the book of Ecclesiastes. For a general idea about what's going on in this book of Ecclesiastes, imagine working in a tobacco industry for 50 years, building a fortune, and then giving a huge endowment to a lung cancer hospital making it the most effective treatment center for patients suffering from the effects of a lifetime spent smoking cigarettes. You might say that the founding of Lung Cancer Hospital using the money made from selling tobacco was done in vain. Specifically, your desire to help those with lung cancer was done in vain because you contributed to the cause of that lung cancer in the first place. It's as though you have done absolutely nothing causing lung cancer and then trying to eradicate and treat it is much the same as never having done either of these things, end quote. So I think what this Encyclopedia Judaica is trying to raise is, you know, you, you think you solve a problem by giving lots of money to this charity to build a hospital, but you are actually, in fact, the cause of the problem itself. You worked in the tobacco industry and so on and so forth. And I think what the, the book is trying to get at is this. It's almost like the tail trying to catch the head and the head trying to catch the tail. How do we get out of this problem of our own, or of our own messiness, of our own undoing? So then, is there any kind of knowledge production that will bring us to a point of closure or rest? I think so. Here's a fascinating point raised by Esther Meek, a philosopher at Geneva College, I believe, in her book called Loving to Know, Covenant Epistemology which has quickly become one of my favorite books recently. She talks about the fact that there is another kind of knowledge and knowledge production. It's called relational knowing. Relational knowing. Of knowing that leads to love, of knowledge that goes from information to transformation. Tree of knowledge leading to the tree of life, thus of wisdom. 
You see, the problem with Adam and Eve's act of presumption and rebellion was not that there was something intrinsically wrong with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By circumscribing our knowledge to what God lovingly reveals to us and growing into further maturity would have led them to eternal life. Yet we got ahead of ourselves. We took that prerogative of knowing the limits of our knowledge, which was God's prerogative, and we took that upon ourselves, and thus there is a futility in our knowledge production. We produce and produce, but we don't really seem to know where it is headed and to what end. That leads me to my second point in our sermon, beauty of the knowledge of God's identity that we see in verse 13. Our text reads, Now all has been heard. Here's a conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So my first question is, obviously, who is this God? And what are God's commandments? And what does that tell me about us? So let's actually, to do that, let's actually go to Exodus 3, 14 and 15 as a key text that sheds light on the identity question here about the God whom we are to fear. So Exodus 3, 14 and 15, if your Bibles or if your phones, John Piper says something like the most wonderful sound, the most beautiful sound you'll hear in any church is the pages of Bible turning, but I guess he said that before the age of the internet because now most of us turn our phones on and turn to it. But regardless, let's go to Exodus chapter 3 because this is the text that tells us about God's identity as God revealed himself to the people of Israel. So what is that text about Exodus chapter 3, 14 and 15? It is about Moses encountering God in the burning bush, right? So Moses had done something that caused his fleeing from Egypt, right? What did he do? He tried to help an Israelite but he ended up killing an Egyptian, and the Israelites said, who are you? Why did you volunteer to be our redeemer? You're not one of us. So Moses took off, and he has been in the wilderness, and believing that he's forsaken by God and forgotten by Yahweh. And yet he is minding his own business. He sees this burning bush, and he gets near it and near it, and God says, don't come near, for you're standing on holy ground. Take off your sandals. And that's the text that's been leading up to this Exodus 3. So Exodus 3, 14 and 15 says this, that Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. What does that mean? I am who I am. Among other things, this identity descriptor, I am who I am, tells us that God's identity is self-referential. Meaning this, God is not dependent upon something or someone prior to be God. God is, I am who I am. I don't need something else to, be, to define me or to talk about me. We are, on the other hand, definitely dependent upon some prior cause, namely our parents and their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents. You get the picture. So God is self-referential. I am who I am. Not that I am who I am. I don't care. No, it's not that. But in terms of just talking about God's cause or God's identity or God's beginning, God says, I have no beginning. I am who I am. 
I am who I am further. God is not only self-referential, but as a result, this God is eternal and thus not bound by space or time. Now think about this and try to think about this. God's existence outside of time. Can you even imagine something outside of time? Verbally, I think we can, but existentially it is impossible. If you can think that reality, God exists also outside of space. We're all in space. We're spatial beings, but God created space itself. That means there was, a, there was when space was not, right? So God is that as well. Yet the beauty of this great I am is that this God exists in the eternal fellowship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we see with so much greater clarity in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John. Yet that's not all. It is this God who has given us his commandments. Now we ask this question, why did God give us his commandments? Notice verse 15 of Exodus 3. It is this God, the Lord who is I am who I am, has also chosen to reveal himself as the God of your fathers. Listen carefully, friends. This is very important that we get this. That this language of God of your fathers is absolutely crucial as a couplet to I am who I am. Yes, I am who I am, God says, because I, am, I don't need anything else to be me. I am eternal. I'm outside of time and space. I am the absolute one. Yet at the same time, I have chosen to covenant with you. I have chosen to relate with you. I have chosen to say, you know what? You belong to me and I belong to you. God has the rest, reciprocal covenantal relationality. That means I am in a locked-up relationship. I am locked into this relationship with you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Try as you might, but I'm always going to be there. You see, for Moses and the people of Israel, their understanding of God and relationship with God went this way, and this is the same with all the people of God since this great Exodus event. Think about the orders of books, yes? Exodus comes before Leviticus, correct? Right? So Exodus comes to Leviticus not only chronologically and also in terms of book order, but in theological order, that's also as well. That means redemption comes before law-giving. They crossed the Red Sea and experienced that wonderful salvation event before they received the law. And that's an absolutely crucial truth to remember. God's giving us of the law was based upon the relationship of covenant, Covenant of grace. Covenant means unbreakable relational commitment that God enters into with us. So in these final few words, the writer Solomon or Kohelet, or as I like to call him, as I said, the Q-man, is moving towards the pathway of humility. Yes, okay, he may have been a man of debauchery with multiple, multiple wives and concubines and all of that, having done many projects and have built many buildings, having owned everything there was to own, basically. And yet he's fastly moving toward the path of humility. How? He comes to acknowledge that his end is near and God who is eternal will bring everything under judgment, moving toward the path of humility. Your actions will be judged. All our actions, including those of uh, Kohelet or Solomon, will stand under the all-powerful, all-knowing, divine scrutiny from which none of us can escape. Recognizing that causes us to tremble and hush and cling to God and God's promises here. So who is this God again? Our God, Israel's God, is one who says, I am who I am. The same great I am also is the God of our fathers and our mothers. I enter into a covenantal relationship with you to redeem you, God says, to have you come to know me and to love me and to desire me. 
You might remember Mr. Beaver, how he responds to Susan and Lucy's question about this Aslan from the Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, about the great lion Aslan, whether he was safe. Do you remember that? And it's very oft, often quoted saying. And Beaver says, who says anything about safe? Of course, Aslan is not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God isn't safe, but God is good. God is the one whose royal identity is not designed to rule tyrannically and make his subject's life miserable. In fact, as we will soon see, this Aslan incarnate will have his coronation through his crucifixion. His coronation through his crucifixion. Let's then move quickly to the third and the final point, destiny of our identity as beloved of God. So then, who are we? Look at verse 14, the final verse of our text, and that will reveal to us who we are. And this is actually in a sort of an ironic truth. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Right? Verse 14 right there. How do you feel about, how do you feel about yourself after reading this? Sigh of relief, okay, I'm good. Because God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Or are you sort of like me? Oh, crap, why even bother? I am done. I'm actually undone. You see, friends, even within the Jewish liturgy, of which this book was a very important part, there was a deep recognition that we cannot possibly stand before God justified without sacrifice. Indeed, as Friedrich Nietzsche said, interestingly, that Jewish sacrifices are literally bloody reminders of our colossal failure to get it right with God. So we had to kill God, Nietzsche says, to be free of that reminder that we're not as good as we think we are. Because there's a constant reminder somehow telling me that I failed and I'm miserable and I need to just get rid of God from my horizon so that I feel better about myself, Nietzsche says, and that's what he says many of us have done. Within the same Jewish liturgy and theology, there is, as you may remember, the year of Jubilee. Remember that? A 50th celebration, 50th year celebration, where land will rest after 49 years of tilling and harvesting, you'll get a full year of rest. And then if you've been serving in somebody's household for 49 years, then you'll be set free in your 50th year. Or even if you had only served one year, if you come to that year of Jubilee, you will be set free as an economic and agrarian and judicial kind of year of liberation in order to signal something really, really powerful. That is that God is in the business of liberation, and also showing God's radical generosity and hospitality, which is to be embodied and emulated by the people of God. Leviticus 25, 1 through 10 describes this in wonderful detail. Some of you know that my, my favorite theologian locally and globally is uh, one of my favorite ones is Michael Card, who I think lives here in Nashville, and his song Jubilee captures a connection between who God is and whose we are so beautifully that we are forgiven, we are set free, because we're covenantally beloved of God. Listen to the words of Michael Card. The Lord provided for a time for the slaves to be set free, for the debts of all to be canceled, for so his chosen one could see. His deep desire was for forgiveness. He longed to see their liberty, and his yearning was embodied in the year of Jubilee. Jubilee, Jubilee, Jesus is our Jubilee. Debt forgiven, slaves set free, Jesus is our Jubilee. 
At the Lord's appointed time, his deep desire became a man. The heart of all true jubilation and with joy we understand. In his voice we hear a trumpet sound that tells us that we are free. He is the incarnation of the year of jubilee. To be so completely guilty, given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and see a Savior there. Friends, read verse 14 again in your heart or in your, on your tablet or device. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. If you do not have the response like I did, I did of saying, oh, shoot, I'm undone, then you are really grossly underestimating the severity of the law of God. Without Jesus, if you just read this text and say, all's good, I'm hunky-dory, no, 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 then you're completely misunderstanding the high bar that God has for human perfection because you're selling yourself cheap. But see, this is the dialectic of the gospel. We ought to see the severity of the law right there, like God will bring everything into judgment, then you and I are completely screwed. We have no hope. Unless we understand the incarnation of the year of Jubilee is none other than God himself in Jesus Christ. That God, who is king, his coronation was at his crucifixion. He was declared to be the king of the Jews when? Most momentously on his death, on the cross. We are beloved of God, thus even in the face of the severity of impending judgment, we can face her tomorrow because we stand secure in the beloved, namely Jesus, and as we are called by him, his beloved children and friends. One of the books that really illustrates this, one of the passages within a book that illustrates this so powerfully is Toni Morrison's Beloved. Some of you have read it in high school and so on. Toni Morrison, um, that book is, you know, a wonderful book, multiple interpretations of what that means, but here's what I think it means, at least in this text. So there is this, you know, a grandma figure, baby Suggs, and she takes uh, the, the, those who had experienced the, the, the harrowing evils and, and sufferings of slavery into these trees, into the woods, in the clearing. And this is what it says. After situating herself on a huge flat-sided rock, baby Suggs bowed her head and prayed silently. The company watched her from the trees. They knew she was ready when she put her stick down. Then she shouted, let the children come. And then they ran from the trees toward her. Let your mother see you, hear you laugh. She told them and the woods rang. The adults looked on and could not help but smile. Then let the grown men come, she shouted. They stepped out one by one from among the ringing trees. Let your wives and your children see you dance. She told them the ground life shuddered under their feet. Finally, she called the women to her. Cry, she told them, for the living and the dead, just cry. And without covering their eyes, the women let loose. It started that way, laughing children, dancing men, crying women, and it got all mixed up. Women stopped crying and danced. Men sat down and cried. Children cried, danced, and all together. Until exhausted and riven, all and each lay about the clearing, damp and gasping for breath. In the silence that followed, baby Suggs wholly offered up to them her great big heart in prayer. And this is a powerful conclusion of that passage. Here she said, in this place, we flesh, flesh that weep, flesh that laugh, flesh that dance on bare feet in grass, love it, love it hard, because out there, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. The world may despise you. Satan will ridicule you. 
He will threaten you, cajole you, but let's remember that you are beloved. Yes, the interpretation given by Satan would be that you are fully deserving of God's wrath and you are absolutely up to no good, but the divine interpretation of Jubilee incarnated in Jesus will say, love it, love it hard, because you are beloved of God in me. So which interpretation of yourself is truer for you today? Let's pray. Lord, as we think about the various and conflicting interpretations of ourself in our life journey, we're mindful and we want to be more mindful of your interpretation of us, that we see the judge's face and find our Savior there, that you, O Lord, are the Exodus King as well as the King of the law. You are the king of our hearts and our lives because you have come to this world to fulfill the law and to suffer under the subjection and the penalty of the law. And we thank you for that. Surely you're right, Lord, that of writing books there is no end and much studying wearies the body. And yet we want to leave the sanctuary with this beautiful truth that God will bring everything into judgment, whether good or evil, but for those of us who belong, who know that we are beloved of God, help us to leave here with that powerful joy that will be shed abroad in the world, knowing that I am beloved so I can love daringly and courageously and freely. Help us to be that loving community that you have destined us to be. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for whose we are. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.